Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash APY. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Trevere Therapeutics, Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice peer to peer panel discussion on immunoglobulin A nephropathy. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Jonathan Barrett and Professor Donald Cohen. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, this is Jonathan Barrett from the University of Leicester in the UK, welcoming you to this activity entitled In Pursuit of Proteinuria Novel Therapeutic Approaches in the Management of IgA Nephropathy. Joining me in this discussion is my colleague, Donald Gohan, from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City in the USA. In the first presentation, titled Mechanisms Matter, Targeting the Pathophysiologic Basis for Progressive Renal Dysfunction in Patients with IgA Nephropathy, we will discuss firstly the pathophysiology of IgA Nephropathy, including the role of the endothelin-1 and angiotensin-2 signaling pathways in the progression of IgA Nephropathy, and the clinical and pharmacologic perspectives on the potential role of novel therapies. So IgA nephropathy is the most common form of glomerulonephritis in patients who undergo a kidney biopsy. IgA nephropathy is characterized by the deposition of mesangial IgA in the glomeruli, resulting in frequent episodes of either intra-infectious macroscopic hematuria or continuous microscopic hematuria and or proteinuria. Other symptoms may include kidney pain, edema, and hypertension. Endothelin-1, or ET1, and angiotensin-2, or ANG2, are implicated in the development and progression of IgA nephropathy and focal and segmental glomerulosclerosis. We now recognize the importance of endothelin-1 and angiotensin-2 signaling pathways, and that these are important in driving progression of IgA nephropathy. So, Don, I, would you be happy to take us through this diagram here, which really summarizes the overarching pathogenesis of IgA nephropathy? Yes, uh, thank you, John. So, as I'm sure everyone is aware, uh, IgA nephropathy involves increased levels of gal-deficient IgA1, and then you have antibodies that form to that, and these immune complexes deposit in the mesangium, leading to mesangial cell proliferation. This stimulates mediators, including ET1 and ANG2, which can, then can feed back in a vicious cycle to stimulate more mesangial cell proliferation, which then in turn stimulates more ET1 and ANG2. Similarly, ET1 and ANG2 can promote inflammation, extracellular matrix production, cytoskeletal alterations, and endothelial dysfunction, which in turn can stimulate ET1 and ANG2. Ultimately, this compromises the glomerular filtration barrier, resulting in proteinuria and hematuria and tubulo-interstitial inflammation and fibrosis. And ultimately, this obviously all leads to a progressive decline in kidney function. Thanks for that, Don. And I think um, it's really interesting that we're starting to understand better the pathophysiology of IgA nephropathy because we have such a large unmet need in this disease. We know that patients with IgA nephropathy have a significant impairment in their quality of life. That's what patients tell me when I see them every week, um, when I look after and see them in my GN clinic. 
we know that current treatments are limited in their efficacy and particularly for uh, the immunomodulatory agents, they are limited by their adverse side effects. We don't really have other approaches when standard of care therapy uh, fails. And we know even with the best supportive care available, patients are still at risk of progression if they continue to have high levels of proteinuria. And of course, in this young, predominantly young patient group, there is a high risk of disease progression. And when we think about the risk of progressing to kidney failure, both in the short term, in that 10 to 20 year window, or in fact, lifetime risk of kidney failure, it is significant for these young people with IgA nephropathy, where at the moment we are unable to offer them disease-modifying therapies. What I think we, we both agreed on is that there are some really exciting opportunities here in terms of new therapies with our greater understanding of the pathophysiology of the disease. Yeah, thanks, John. There really has been in the past several years an explosion of agents targeting new pathways for the treatment of IgA nephropathy. If we just concentrate on sparsentan and atrocentan, do you want to walk us through how these drugs are potentially protecting against kidney function decline and fibrosis in IgA nephropathy? Endothelin acts on a number of cell types in the kidney, so acting through the ETA receptor, it stimulates a variety of signal transduction pathways that lead to an increase in extracellular matrix, mesangial cell contraction, which can affect GFR, and mesangial cell proliferation. In addition, endothelin-1 has a number of effects on podocytes, again stimulating a variety of signal transduction pathways and leading to a variety of pathophysiologic effects, promoting proteinuria. Finally, endothelin-1 within the glomerulus can act on endothelial cells and this further helps promote proteinuria. And Don, I think, you know, I think the development of proteinuria is absolutely critical as a, both a biomarker of um, glomerular injury in IgA nephropathy, but also as a pathogenic mediator in terms of driving tubulo interstitial inflammation and fibrosis. And uh, we have a lot of data available that tells us from very large cohort studies from across the globe how important the severity of proteinuria is as a negative prognostic factor for IgA nephropathy. And actually, we know that for drugs that are able to reduce the amount of proteinuria, they are likely to have a significant beneficial effect on long-term kidney survival and reduce the rate of progression of uh, kidney failure. And indeed, the reduction in proteinuria is now recognized as a meaningful endpoint when we are assessing new therapies in IgA nephropathy. Don, do you want to just take us through that process of how proteinuria does indeed accelerate the rate of kidney function decline? This is a really important point that proteinuria per se stimulates all of these various vasoactive inflammatory mediators and further promotes injuries. You have increased glomerular permeability to a variety of things, including plasma proteins, which then causes increased proteins to be delivered to the tubule. You have excessive reabsorption of these proteins, which further stimulates vasoactive and inflammatory mediators and ultimately leads to tubular cell apoptosis, monocyte infiltration, and other injury. So it becomes really a vicious process. 
certainly when we look at the data that we have in IgA nephropathy, drugs that we know that reduce proteinuria and therefore impact on all of those pathways that you just mentioned, Don, have been associated with long-term kidney function survival. And indeed, this was the basis for the Kidney Health Initiative work group that I was part of that was looking at the relationship between an early change in proteinuria and longer-term kidney function outcomes. And what you can see in this graph is that there is a clear relationship between the magnitude of early proteinuria reduction, i.e. between 6 and 12 months after starting a new treatment, and the kidney function three to five years later in terms of clinical outcome. And you can see by that a dotted line that a 30% reduction in proteinuria leads to a almost halving of the hazard ratio for an outcome, a doubling of serum creatinine end-stage kidney disease or death. And the greater the proteinuria, the greater the long-term kidney function protection, irrespective of the drug that has been used to generate that reduction in proteinuria. Myself and some colleagues looked at the impact of this reduction in proteinuria and modelled using real-world data from patients that I look after in Leicester, what the impact of a 30% reduction in proteinuria would be on the risk of end-stage kidney disease in that population. And what we were able to show is that if we take a 30% reduction in proteinuria, we can see that the median time to end-stage kidney disease in a typical IgA nephropathy population treated with standard supportive care can be delayed by over a decade, which is incredibly important when we remember that this is a disease that is starting in patients in their 30s. Pushing back dialysis by 10 years when you're at this early age is absolutely critical for them in terms of both their family life, their occupation and their financial viability in actual fact. And this 10 years really does impact massively on their potential quality of life. So now let's examine some of the data for novel therapies that may help reduce proteinuria specifically by targeting the endothelin A receptor and the angiotensin to subtype 1 receptor. And here we're going to look at uh, the studies that are ongoing with Sparsentan and Atrocentan. First off, Sparsentan is a combined endothelin A receptor antagonist and ARB. And in the PROTECT study, looking at Herbisartan as a comparator, uh, Sparsentan or Herbisartan were started in patients with IgA nephropathy. Patients in general had an EGFR uh, between 30 and 60, and then another group greater than 60, and urine protein was divided into less than 1.75 and greater than 1.75 grams per day. There was an interim analysis performed at 36 weeks after randomization of 280 patients. And you can see here that Sparsentan really had a quite striking reduction, almost a 50% reduction in proteinuria. Um, the, and this is adults with IgA and, and persistent proteinuria greater than one gram per day. Uh, compared to spar, uh, Herbisartan, which only had about a 15% reduction. So confirmatory endpoints are pending, and this will be the rate of EGFR change in approximately 400 patients. And thus far, no significant safety signal has been reported. In another much smaller study, the Affinity study, uh, Atrocentan was given to 20 patients with IgA nephropathy who were also taking ARBs. There was no placebo control here, 
but you can see that over 24 weeks, there was a 50 to 60% reduction in proteinuria. So quite, quite impressive. Finally, there's an ongoing study called ALIGN, which is a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three study in IgA nephropathy patients taking maximally tolerated doses of ACEs or ARBs. This will be 320 patients, atrocentan compared to placebo, over two and a half years, with the primary outcome being proteinuria and secondary outcome being EGFR. And this study is currently ongoing. So I think, Don, you've really highlighted the importance of endothelium 1 in the development and progression of IgA nephropathy, and uh, that it may well be a very important therapeutic target. Yeah, John, I think there's a lot of emerging preclinical data that really supports a strong pathophysiologic basis for endothelin-1 in the end kidney injury and IgA nephropathy. It's not going to affect um, immune complex formation, but it is going to affect how these immune complexes injure the kidney. I think the trials are providing really strong evidence with uh, quite profound reductions in proteinuria that indeed targeting the ETA receptor may prove to be quite beneficial in IgA nephropathy patients. Thanks, Don. Thank you for listening to the first part of our, of our presentation, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please stay tuned for the second part. Hello, this is Donald Cohan from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Welcome to the second part of this activity titled, Taking Aim at Proteinuria, Current and Future Management of IgA Nephropathy. Joining me in this discussion is my colleague, Jonathan Barrett from the University of Leicester in the UK. In the second part of our discussion, we'll focus on current guidelines and tools that may help optimize existing options and consider where these novel therapies may fit. Now to help kind of make this as practical as possible, let's start with a scenario. So our first case here is a 56-year-old woman referred for evaluation. She has a history of hypertension for 10 years that's been well-controlled, anemia for three years. She has experienced some episodes of microhematuria and gross hematuria. Her current medications include amlodipine, almosartan, clonidine, furosemide, and erythropoietin. Her examined labs re reveal a blood pressure of 140 over 90. Her BMI is 35. She has two to three plus pedal edema, a serum creatinine of 1.2 milligrams per deciliter, which calculates by CKD-EPI out to be an EGFR of 53. On urinalysis, she has three plus protein and three plus heme. Her urinary protein is quite significant at 6.2 nine grams per 24 hours, and her renal ultrasound is within normal limits showing no obvious abnormalities. So Don, when I look at this case, I, uh, I'm immediately drawn to the history of gross hematuria, which would be something that would suggest in a, in a lady with, the, with, uh, uh, with this GFR, blood and protein in the urine, quite significant proteinuria, as you mentioned, um, that this could be consistent with IgA nephropathy because of that strong association between visible hematuria and upper respiratory tract infections. 
Um, but of course, I think this could be consistent with any number of different glomerular diseases. And so uh, if I were to see this lady in clinic, I would perform an immunology screen. But ultimately, I know this lady is going to end up with a kidney biopsy, which I think is what she needs to make a diagnosis, but also potentially to help me to understand what her likely future prognosis is going to be. So a renal biopsy indeed was obtained and it showed diffuse mesangial and focal segmental endocapillary and extracapillary proliferative and sclerosing glomerulonephritis consistent with IgA nephropathy. So John, um, after seeing the biopsy now, what do you think this patient's risk is of developing worsening kidney function most of my patients ask me, what is going to happen? What is my risk of kidney failure? And actually, we now have available an international IgA nephropathy risk prediction tool that you can have on your phone, which does indeed allow you to calculate the risk of uh, a doubling of serum creatinine or end-stage kidney disease within five years of the kidney biopsy. And if we think about what we know about this lady, she has significant proteinuria, which is a poor prognostic sign. She has multiple inflammatory features, on her kidney biopsies, which are potentially um, poor prognostic indicators, and she already has impaired kidney function with an EGFR in the 50s. So we need to be really clear with this lady what the likelihood is of progression, but also we need to emphasize what she can do for herself and potentially what treatments are available. Thanks, John. So Based on the current treatment algorithm that exists for IgA nephropathy, do you think the patient is receiving maximal therapy? And is there anything different that you would recommend? Yeah, so I think we need to address lifestyle factors here for this lady. I don't know whether she's on a maximal tolerated RAS inhibitor. I know she's taking one, but I don't know the dose. Um, her blood pressure, as I say, could be a little bit better. I think with the best will in the world and all of those interventions, she is still going to be left with significant proteinuria after we have optimized supportive care. The current KDGO guidelines would suggest that because of the lack of data for safe and effective treatments currently in IgA nephropathy, the first port of call should be, if available, to consider her involvement in a clinical trial. And that's certainly my practice in my unit. And if she was agreeable, then we would obviously go ahead and screen her. And I think she'd make an ideal candidate in actual fact for a clinical study of one of these new therapies that you talked about earlier. Um, but if she didn't want to be in a trial or there wasn't a trial available, the one treatment option that potentially we could consider is immunomodulatory therapy with either systemic glucocorticoids. But we know how significant their adverse effects are. And we'd need to do a very careful toxicity risk stratification. So this lady is not diabetic, but her BMI was high. And we need to be we would be worried, obviously, about weight gain and development of the metabolic syndrome if we gave her six months of corticosteroids. And then we have the new approved directed budesonide, which could be an alternative. But I still think in my practice, I would be um, at least making sure she was aware of the opportunity to be involved in a clinical trial as per the KDGO guidelines. Thank you, John. That was really, really helpful. So now what should we be doing to really focus on the risk of uh, her worsening kidney disease? The really exciting thing at the moment is we've got multiple therapies that could be targeting multiple aspects of the pathogenic cascade. But fundamentally, whatever treatment we decide to use, we need to be focusing 
on trying to protect the declining kidney function. But we know that with IgA nephropathy, things generally happen slowly, and we can't wait 12, 24 months to know whether a treatment is working or not. And that's where the value of an early change in proteinuria becomes really important in terms of assessing whether a treatment is working. And what has been shown from a variety of initiatives, global initiatives, that have involved the NKF, the US FDA, the European Medicines Agency, and other regulatory agencies, is that an early change in proteinuria, i.e. within six to 12 months of starting a new therapy, is a really good marker of whether a drug is likely to have a long-term kidney protection effect. John, that's great. So after we've said all this, how would you actually manage this patient? I know you talked about that to some extent. So what would be your goals of therapy and your really expected outcomes that you're going to tell this patient? And then secondly, how would that strategy change if the patient was much younger or older? I would want to optimize the simple things. So the conservative management approach I mentioned in terms of lifestyle modification, in terms of maximizing blood pressure control. And then I would have an open discussion with her about the other opportunities. A clinical trial, which I think, from my perspective, I would really want to make sure she's aware of the opportunity to take part in a clinical study. But then if she didn't want to do that, or she, for some reason, was not eligible, Eric Budesonide is an option in this lady. In terms of the older patient or the younger patient, I would again be taking a very similar approach, to be quite honest. I think we need to be really optimizing supportive care in all patients. We need to be addressing cardiovascular risk in all patients, and we need to be tailoring treatment to the patient that's in front of us. If we're thinking about corticosteroids, we need to look at their risk profile and appropriately decide whether corticosteroids are the safe a right thing to give that patient. I'm talking here about systemic corticosteroids. Looking at the timelines for the current clinical trials, I think we've already had data from Budesonide. We've had data, early data from Sparsentan. I think it's likely we're going to get nine-month proteinuria data from at least a couple of phase three trials each year now for the next two or three years. So we are going to get data thick and fast, having had nothing for the past 50 years. So that's incredibly exciting for patients. It's incredibly exciting for us as physicians. But the real challenge for us as physicians is hopefully if all these drugs work, and if we remember back to your diagram, all the different uh, pathways that can be targeted, how do we combine them to get the right control over what is happening in IgA nephropathy? And I think the big question for us is going to be giving the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And that is only going to evolve over time as we get used to using these individual therapies and understanding as clinicians how we can combine them. So uh, thanks, John. That was fantastic. So um, let me just summarize. The case we presented highlights current limitations for management of IgA nephropathy. And these really, as John discussed, focus on supportive measures primarily and modifiable risk factors with the potential addition of uh, orally active, uh, orally targeted steroids. Now, future therapies that target the pathophysiologic mechanisms that we talked about in IgA nephropathy I think have a lot of potential to help improve, improve overall outcomes as well as the quality of life. So it really is an exciting time. So I think as sort of a 
final question, and I don't think we'll be surprised by John's answer. If you had a call to action for clinicians, if you will, what would it be? My call to action is please, as clinicians, encourage your sites, encourage your colleagues to become involved in clinical studies of new therapies in IGA nephropathy. Make sure your patients are aware of what studies are available for them. If you're not doing a clinical trial in your site, find out which sites close by are doing them and offer your patients the opportunity to hear about these clinical studies. It's up to them to decide whether they wish to take part, but they at least need to have the ability to hear about what studies are happening and have the opportunity to take part in what is really shaping up to be an absolutely fantastic future for patients with IgA nephropathy with all these new therapies coming online. Thank you very much, John. And thank you everybody for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed these segments on IgA nephropathy. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.